Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. Put them in the lowest paying jobs. Put them outside the equal protection of the law. Kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground. A higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. The American dream is dead. But if I get elected president, I will bring it back bigger and better and stronger than ever before, and we will make America great again. What is crucial here? Unless we can manage this, there got to be some kind of dialogue between those people whom I pretend has paid for the American dream and those other people who have not achieved it we will be in terrible trouble. I want to say at the end, the last, is that that is what concerns me most. We are sitting in this room and we are all, at least we like to think we are, relatively civilized. And we can talk to each other at least on certain levels. So that we could walk out of here assuming that the measure of our enlightenment or at least our politeness has some effect on the world. It may not. I remember, for example, when the ex-Attorney General, Mr. Robert Kennedy, 
said that it was conceivable that in 40 years in America, we might have a Negro president. And that sounded like a very emancipated statement, I suppose, to white people. They were not in Harlem when this statement was first heard. And did not hear, and possibly will never hear, the laughter and the bitterness and the scorn in which the statement was greeted. From the point of view of the man in the Harlem barbershop, Bobby Kennedy only got here yesterday. And now he's already on his way to the presidency. We've been here for 400 years, and now he tells us that maybe in 40 years, if you're good, we may let you become president. What is dangerous here is the turning away from, the turning away from anything any white American says. The reason for the political hesitation in spite of the Johnson landslide is the one that's been betrayed by American politicians for so long. And I am I'm a grown man, and perhaps I can be reasoned with. I certainly hope I can be. But I don't know, and neither does Martin Luther King, none of us know how to deal with those other people whom the white world has so long ignored, who don't believe anything the white world says, and don't entirely believe anything I or Martin say. And one can't blame them. You watch what has happened to them in less than 20 years. These people have been historically disenfranchised. And it made me feel hopeful. And it made me feel proud to be an American. And it made me very happy about the prospects of our country. So, in that spirit, I'm wishing Donald Trump luck. And I'm going to give him a chance. And we, the historically disenfranchised, demand that he give us one too. Well, this is a, a moment where racial bigotry and autocracy come together. That's why the moment is so he's a racial bigot and an autocrat. So I think we need a pledge of resistance. I think clergy need to go to sheriff's offices and say, if you're not going to be held accountable by Washington, clergy will hold you accountable for your policing in this town. When they register Muslims, Christians and Jews should be in line registering as Muslims. Uh, Like, let's be smart about this. I'm not saying there won't come a time when we don't have to take to the streets and join with other people. But this is not the time for that. Now's the time for strategy. You got people out there losing their minds. I saw Jamil Bowie, writer Jamil Bowie, write something to the sense of, uh, uh, I, I underestimated how much white people, white, white people hate black people. Really? Where you been living, Jamil? I, I, don't, I don't know where you been living. But the truth of the matter is, you got to keep in mind that Trump got Trump got more of the black vote than Romney. Trump got more of the Hispanic vote, okay, than Romney. You, you, you got you got 9% of Democrats came out and voted for Trump. These are numbers that matter, and they speak to something different than everybody who came out to vote for Trump is a racist. I'm not saying that Trump didn't play. Our problem is we think we part of this government, and you're not. Yes, sir. See, few people know Hitler won that election by 288 votes, okay? And almost wiped the world out. So you can get by with that with the church, 
But you can't get by with that with the universe that made the moon, the sun, and the stars. And that's where we are. Resistance. Uh, so to me, it's faith, resistance, healing, yes. But you start with resistance. This is a moment for resistance, and we all got to make our own pledge. So I'm not asking you for the truth. I know the truth. I know enough. And any minute, any second now, so will the rest of planet Earth. So what I'm asking you is, what is your end game? This is our common ground. Broadcasting bold, brave. And black. Your hands get out the scenes what you best believe for this hell to pay. Yeah, you best believe for this hell to pay. Sam. When you sit there and you write them fucking notes on your pad about who you think I am and why I did it and all of that. You're gonna see the swim, you're gonna learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Who are you? Who are you? No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us here at our common ground in these perilous times. Tonight at our common ground, we're looking at something that we need to do, and we need to do in earnest. How do we, asking the question, how do we dig an entrance to yet a new transformative path? Because you know what? The one we were on had too many confusing detour signs, and we need to figure it out. We're waking up to a very frightening glimpse of the Trump theory of racism And that theory is, go big or go home. I hope all of you are well. And before I forget and we get to uh, our conversation with Bruce Dixon, the founding, co-founding and managing editor of the Black Agenda Report and the chair of the Georgia State Green Party, We need to extend to all of our listeners tonight um, greetings and well wishes for health and maintaining whatever prosperity we have in this season of gratitude. However you, you will celebrate and for whatever reason you will celebrate this Thanksgiving holiday, we want to extend our very sincere wishes for things to be grateful for and that each of you have enough. Before we um, bring uh, Bruce Dixon on and get into this conversation tonight, I do want to take a moment uh, to mark the death of Gwen Eiffel who was an American Peabody Award-winning journalist, a television newscaster, and author. She was born in Queens, New York in 1955, and she died on November 14th. Uh, She was a host of PBS NewsHour, Washington Week, 
and uh, we want to extend our sincere condolences to her brother, Roberto Eiffel, Earl Eiffel, her sister, Mala Phillips Eiffel, uh, sister-in-law, I'm sorry, and her brother, Oliver Eiffel Jr. And if you do not know who Gwen Eiffel is, then you haven't been paying particular attention. Gwen Eiffel happened to be uh, a student of mine one semester at Simmons when she was an undergraduate at Simmons College. Her funeral was held in Washington, D.C. That drew thousands of mourners, and uh, we have lost a serious and very honest uh, journalist in uh, from our community and in the body of communications. Uh, if you haven't learned what some of the headlines are in the news, Trump, uh, the president-elect, oh, God, I get cotton in my mouth the, over this. He settled for $25,000 uh, his civil lawsuit in regard to Trump Tower on yesterday, uh, but we don't know what other legal actions will come after him. Uh, I want to note and a big high five to the cast of Hamilton for calling out, oh God, the vice president-elect uh, Michael Pence at their performance last night. Uh, developers in uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline have indicated that they will continue their project they are refusing to do anything in response to the protests. So we're we're not rolling in deep surprise over the news items or where we are, um, who remains uh, suppressed, uh, whom remains oppressed. Um, you know, one of the things that really troubled me throughout all of this uh, campaign rhetoric uh, and the anger and angst that has been pointed at the person who was elected president of the United States is simply this. No one bothered to ask him as he proclaimed that he will make America great again. Nobody ever bothered to ask him what that means. And after he does the five dozen things that he said he would do as campaign promises, how that equals and what his vision is of a greater America. So we're, we need to we need to think about that. Um, so. We, we we come through this week. This has been a rough week. We come through this week with new partners in this democracy, partners that are not po partners at all in any democracy. They're powerful men. They are men who are ideologues in their own right and in their own sense of self. They are different from us, and many people are saying that people are scampering in fear. 
And I really don't think that, and I had a conversation with the Our Common Ground interlocutor, uh, Pascal Robert, this afternoon, and I really don't believe it's fear. I think it's a state of anxious helplessness, and we're going to talk with uh, Bruce Dixon about it, but here are our new in our lives, in our political lives, uh, and in our personal lives, because things are going to change if they have their way and not for toward the good. Jeff Sessions, Rudy Giuliani, Ann Coulter, um, Laura Ingram. This is all the old dine, including uh, the person who was elected. This is all the old if you're if you're not new to talk radio this is all the new don uh old don imus crew alex jones and a thousand other savory characters so i think that one one of the things that we we really need to get a hold of uh as yvette carnell of breakingbrown.com who will be with us next week, by the way. Um, as Yvette points out, we've got to have strategies. We've got to know where where we are. And as I open this 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 program this evening, we've got to find the transformative path that will take us where we need to be. And with that, uh, I am so pleased uh, to be able to. Um, share with our audience and to be um, able to talk with uh, Bruce Dixon, uh, the managing uh, editor and a co-founder of the Black Agenda Report. Brother Bruce, thank you so much for being with us. It's good to have you back. Oh, thank you for the invite. And uh, next week's show is with event. I'm going to have to listen to that. Well, you know, you can go in our invites because we have a little a little posse going on. <laughs> um, That'll work. Uh, Pascal Robert, uh, Yvette Cornell, Tommy Curry, and uh, Irami Osei-Frambong, and they do a monthly with us, and we call them the Our Common Ground Interlocutors. But Uh-oh. even this year... Uh, Yvette has been with us, I, I think, like six times, uh, and it is right. exciting to, to 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 hear her. But we are so glad uh, to have you be able to take the time to be with us. And um, I, I just want my audience to know that Bruce is the chair of the Georgia State Green Party, and you all had a good showing. In America, oh, not, 5, 000, oh. 5 million voters is a good showing. Yeah, considering so that um, we had no access to media, none. Uh, yeah. I mean, practically none. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, Hillary had access to all the media in the world. She spent $1 billion on her campaign. Um, Donald Trump got $1 billion worth of media free without even having to spend for it, in addition to the money he spent. Um, People talk about uh, the impact that Bernie uh, was able to make during his campaign, 
but the only reason that he was able to make that impact um, you know, was not purely because of his message. It was because as a Democrat, uh, once he got into the uh, debates with Hillary, they were unable to keep him from getting some corporate media. Um, if we had been admitted to the debates, I'm confident that we, we would have gotten uh, way into the double digits, at least 20, 25% of the vote. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I want to talk to you about, um, and it, it really is the uh, importance, but also the, the, the possibility um, of third party, a third-party political mechanism that serves us and and ensures that we are aligning ourselves politically with the right groups of people. Can you tell us why you believe that black people simply have not come to a consciousness about the failure of this bipartisan bipartisan this two-party system to serve them and why a third party and the Green Party uh, has been unable to succeed in our community. All right. Um, sure. Well, to start with, um, we got to look at, well, 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 to start with, I never blame the people. You know, to say that mm-hmm. uh, the problem is the people haven't um, got the consciousness to do this and that. I don't buy that. Um, old man uh, in China, Mao Zedong, used to say that when the revolution fails, it's the fault of the revolutionaries. It means you didn't have your game together, you didn't have your program together, you didn't have your 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 tactics and your execution together. You didn't have it together. You need to go back to the drawing board and find out what you did wrong and try to do it better next time. And that's the way I feel about it. I don't blame the people. Um, there were things that could have been done better, and there are lots of things to learn in this. Um, after all, uh, we've never had a real revolution in this country, and there's never been one um, at the center of world capitalism. If it was easy to do, it would have been done by somebody else a long time ago. Uh, political parties, I, uh, I'm 66 years old, okay? I'm from Chicago. Uh, born and raised on the south side, uh, product of the ghetto on the south side, I guess. And um, political parties all around the world are not engines to win office necessarily. Political parties are how human beings get together to express and enact and enforce their political will. Political parties exist in places where there have never been elections, or where there hasn't been a real election in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, or never. You know, so the idea that people have where they say, well, you're not a political party if you can't win the next election, that's utterly bogus and, um, you know, would be laughed away everywhere else in the world except here, where we're trained to think um, something else. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I mean, um, as long as people have um, needs, wants, and desires, as long as people have a political will, okay, they have a right to, uh, a, they, they don't just have the right to a political party, they practically have the obligation 
to form a political party, whether they can win or not. And um, just look at, um, well, well the, uh, the most accessible example to black people in this country is perhaps the freedom movement, which liberals like to call the civil rights movement. Uh, the people who were involved in it, I promise you, your memory might be long enough. Uh, they didn't call it the civil rights movement, did they? They called it the freedom no, movement. No, no, right. And, yeah, see, now the people in the freedom movement, uh, they didn't care about what you could get through the Congress this year or next year or what the consultants and the experts said could be gotten through the Congress this year or next year. They were for justice and jobs and, you know, a fair economy for everybody and a fair society for everybody. That's what they were about. And um, it just happens that uh, the two parties, neither of the two parties will get us that. Neither of the two parties are about that. I spent, um, um, I was in the Black Panther Party in Chicago in 69 and 70 and um, did many other things after that. But in uh, 74, um, Bobby Rush, who's now the congressman from the first district, and before that he had been the, um, uh, the deputy minister of defense in the, in the Chicago, in the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, he ran for Democratic War Committee in the second ward on the near south side. I got involved in his campaign. And, um, you know, and, and I sort of got hooked into the electoral matrix then. And um, I, I worked along with many of the best and brightest people um, I met in my lifetime uh, from 74 until the end of the 20th century, until 2000, trying to hijack the Democratic Party from below and trying to make it against its will a people's party. And uh, we were working against uh, the Daily Machine. Uh, Chicago, as you know, for uh, 45 out of 55 years was ruled by one or another Richard Daly. Okay. There was old man Daly who ruled from 55 to, I think, 75. And uh, the younger Daly who ruled from 80, um, I want to say 88, 88, 89 to um, uh, very recently. I, I, you know, so... So the deal is that um, Chicago was a one-party state. Uh, we used to call the old man daily, people used to call him Pharaoh. Okay, That's, that gives you an idea of the regard that black people had for him. He was Pharaoh, and this, this other guy is the son of Pharaoh. But we worked against the daily machine for 25 years, and there were people working against the daily machine for years before I came on the scene. And we elected many independents to uh, local office, to, to the state legislature, sent a couple to Congress. Uh, Ralph Metcalf, who um, uh, ran in the same relay team that Jesse Owens did in the 33 Olympics, we sent him to Congress against the will of City Hall and against the will of the machine. Um, and eventually we even elected a genuine reform mayor uh, in 1983 and 87, Harold Washington. We won many, many victories. We organized uh, communities, uh, you know, from top to bottom. And um, but every time we, uh, every time we made a gain, every time we did this kind of stuff, the Democratic Party changed the laws and changed the rules, so that um, uh, right now that party is firmly in the control and under the irretrievable control of the money people. It's uh, a vehicle of the 1%. Um, right now, if you're a Democrat, uh, the, 
if you're a Democrat, there's no place you can go to have your input into um, policy. Um, all you get to do is watch MSNBC and CNN to find out what your positions are. Just like if you're a Republican, you get to watch Fox News to find out what your positions on the issues are. Um, you don't have any voice. The only people who have voices uh, in the Democratic Party as far as um, issue positions go are the one percenters who uh, pay the bills for it. So what we've got to do is uh, we've got to realize that as Democrats, we are passengers. We're not allowed um, in the driver's seat. We're not allowed to even see the steering wheel. We ride around in the trunk. We ride around in the trunk. Face it. Um, uh, a few years ago, when uh, my daughter got a new car, uh, I opened up the trunk of her car, and I saw that they had, uh, I, I think starting around 08 or 09, they had these latches where you could escape from the trunk if somebody, I, I guess, locked you in a trunk, you know. Uh, and for, for some reason, though, our people, by and large, have not yet chosen to escape from the trunk of the Democratic Party and find a new home. And uh, what's, what's up with us, our task now is to build that new home. Um, and uh, I'm working on building that new home in the Green Party. Um, uh, that may work and it may not. But uh, what, what is for certain, and I think it will actually, I'm an optimist, I think it will, but what is absolutely for certain is that uh, we don't have a home where we have a voice in the Democratic or Republican parties. It just doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. I really, those who I really like, like the m metaphor about the trunk, Bruce. I, I think that that is um, just so important for us to understand that there are ways in which to hit that latch. And it doesn't mean that yeah. everybody rolls, rolls out into the, in, into the Green Party. Uh, I spent two years with Ron Daniels as a chair of the Campaign for a New Tomorrow going across this country trying to help people understand the, ne the necessity of having political mechanisms within communities, not only for electoral politics, but for referendum politics and for driving a nascent agenda which would empower people not only politically but economically, educationally, and to be able to formulate uh, a sustainable community. And, and I really well, want yeah. to go back mm -hmm. to that point with you, um, and that yes, is yeah. that it is not just about electoral politics. Oh, absolutely. Um, we have come, you know, um, I've been involved – I've been involved with the Green Party for six or seven years now. And, of course, I've been doing political stuff, uh, I guess, ever since I was in high school in the 60s. But um, those of us in the Green Party, um, many of us in the Green Party, are only now coming to realize some of the things that uh, the Green Party has done wrong and, what, uh, and, and, more importantly, what the right things might be. Um, there's much mm -hmm. more to it than just forming a party and trying to run for office. Um, mm -hmm. Much, much mm -hmm. more to it. Um, what we need, first of all, is a new kind of party, um, and um, a new kind of party that's 
uh, funded and financed by membership dues and uh, a new kind of party that um, uh, will begin to take back our movement from uh, the nonprofits. You know, because, um, I mean, I, I've had the experience where, where for instance, uh, some atrocity goes on down here in Atlanta. And um, uh, there's a meeting, and, uh, you know, I come to the meeting, and, you know, you know with a few other folks, and um, there's a respectable crowd there. And um, this, these people are from this nonprofit organization. Those folks are from that nonprofit organization. Well, we're from the Green Party. Well, they look at us kind of side well, they look at us kind of side eyed because in their um world, in the nonprofit world, um everybody is uh, a competitor for or or a potential competitor for grant money. You know? Mm-hmm. And what you mm-hmm. are is you're another single issue organization whose issue is electing people. Now that's sort of a guarantee of irrelevance right there. If your issue is electing people and other people's issue is um, solving the problem, well, then uh, you just made a fool out of yourself right there. You know, um, the, the United States is the only place where we have allowed nonprofits to um, uh, be the caretakers of the social movement. We really can't do that. Nonprofits cannot lead the 99%. Why? Because nonprofits are um, – Selected, chosen, and set up and funded by the one percent. Period. And that one percent puts a mission and an agenda and expected outcomes on that money. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And um, you know, I mean, uh, we've never seen it done right any, anywhere in this country. So, um, I mean, I want to say that you know, you can't really blame us for having. Uh, felt around in the dark uh, for a while before we found the door, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, we've, we've groped around in the dark, and we believe we found the door. Now, there's a lot of people also who are not going to even try, you know, who, who may be riding around in that trunk, riding around in the Democrats' trunk, but they're not going to pull the latch and escape until they already know that there's a place to go, and they're already confident in there being a place to go. Now, there's some people who just pull that latch and go out and say, well, if there ain't um, a vehicle to ride in, we're going to build a vehicle, okay? And and we need people like that right now. There's a, the, there's yeah. a lot of other people who aren't going to do anything but criticize until the house is already built, until the vehicle yeah. is already you know, built and on the runway with the engines running. And that's fine. And that's fine. We yeah. we're, and, we're and, mad and at we, we need to... We need to look at the process of what happened in this 2016 uh, primary uh, and uh, full election campaign to see exactly how that happened, because I think black people need to understand that you've got to have, you've got to stand on what you stand for. And sometimes that means that you will lose. But oh, yeah. I saw, I was stunned, I, and I have my own criticisms of the of the the Green Party, the National Green Party, and how things uh, uh, jumped off. But when Bernie Sanders, everybody that had to burn, 
when when most of those people jumped from Bernie Sanders based on why they said they were on fire for him and jumped to Hillary Clinton, I was just stunned. How could that be? That's like me being um, <clears throat> standing on a platform of black nationalism, and I decided to go with Donald Trump. I'm calling him the dumbass, y'all, so you understand. <laughs> and we've got to somehow align our political aspirations, our political strategies around the principles, and if we're not building our strategies on principles that make sense for us, that are truly in our interests, we, we, we're, you know, staying in the trunk, for instance, we're going to always be where we are now because you, you keep doing what you're doing, you keep getting what you're getting. Well, Hillary was such a hideous and defective candidate that a lot of people just needed any other excuse to remain Democrats, and Bernie provided them with that excuse. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and at least Bernie Sanders was honest, okay, way back on May 5th, 2015, um, on George Stephanopoulos' show, uh, Meet the Press, I think it is, uh, Bernie said that if I don't win, I'm going to support the Democratic nominee. Period, exclamation point. And, well, he couldn't uh, have said that, anything uh, else. I mean, well, I mean, he's part of the establishment, whether he's truly, an independent, uh, a Democrat, fact, or a Republican. As a matter of fact, his independence is kind of a sham. Um, I mean, if you look at the man's career, um, I believe he ran for, uh, I believe he did two terms as a mayor, and then he either ran for re-election or ran for some other office and lost. And then when he lost, he went on to the Kennedy School of Government, hung out there for a little bit less than a year, and then came back. Um, and after he came back, uh, Democrat, he's still supposed to be a socialist and an independent, but Democrats never ran anybody else against him after that. Now, I don't know mm-hmm. what that says, okay? I don't know what that says, but <laughs> Democrats never ran any, anybody else against him. Um, there's a guy named Ashley. Oh God. Now his name is uh, slipping me um, uh, from the state of Vermont. And he's written extensively on this. There was a black woman um, who was going to run for either Senate or um, the congressional seat against, uh, um, against uh, in the democratic party um, when yeah. Bernie was already an, in, an incumbent. And you're aware of this, the Democrats in Vermont did everything they could to sabotage could, that yes. woman. Yes. You know, so, they did, so, and, uh, to the point what? that she has become um, a, a party malignant, I call those people, where nobody <laughs> listens to anything she has to say and she can't get anything done. But here, here is my problem, Bruce, with what has happened with the Green Party, and that is that, um, I mean, I supported the Green Party when Cynthia McKinney was the candidate. Uh, I supported the party with Jill Stein as the candidate because of Ajimu Baraka, who is an Our Common Ground voice, and I know what he stands for, and I trust and have confidence in his leadership. 
But here in the New England area, the Green Party kind of like frazzles me. And I'm sure it's true for listeners in other parts of the country where the Green Party really doesn't embrace anything other than very general, nice-to-have kind of referendum items. When there's a fight, you have to go find the Green Party, and then you have to convince them to get in the fight. And yeah, there well, have, have been <laughs> – pardon me? That's, that's, that's obviously backwards, <laughs> okay? And uh, that's why um, there is an insurgent movement inside the Green Party, and Ajamu was part of it now, too. Um, I'm part uh-huh. of it. Um, there, there is a national network of people who are part of it. A number of people in the Stein campaign are part of it. Um, and, and we're about shaking up, reimagining, and reforming, and recreating the Green Party as a self-financing, self-sustaining, membership-based party. Um, and, uh-huh. and, you know, that, that kind of change goes very, very deep. Um, think about this. If you've got a party that, I mean, um, the only way anybody, well, no, let's, let's say it this way. Um, the mass membership party is the only way anybody in the last 150 years has ever created a successful left opposition party. Uh, if your party's not based on membership and membership dues to finance it, um, it, it really can't be done. Nobody's ever succeeded mm-hmm. in creating um, a, a, a mass membership party where all you had to do was, was show up and raise your hand to join. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's never worked. It can't work. Uh, if it could work, then we would have had a successful Green Party a long time ago. And uh, the way it is with the structure of the Green Party is that is a reform that has to take place state by state by state. And um, we're undertaking that uh, in Georgia right now. Um, they've got it going to uh, an extended New York um, and Ohio, and uh, they're working it in uh, half a dozen other states that I know. And it'll take a little while. It'll take a little while. I mean, okay. um, there, are, there are, you know, successes and failures and fits and starts, and and like I said, nobody's ever had a revolution in this country before. Nobody's ever built a a mass membership opposition left party in this country before. So we had to find our way around in the dark and try a few things before we hit upon what we believe is the right thing. Let me tell you a story of of how we failed um, in a couple of instances so it can illuminate um, how, we succeed, how we can succeed, okay? Um, in Georgia in 2010, right after I got involved with the Green Party, um, in 2010, there was a hunger strike of prisoners in the state prison system here in Georgia. Um, this was I a remarkable that. occurrence. Right. And what you saw there was uh, the black rosters made common cause with the Muslims, made common cause with uh, the Latin gangsters, made common cause with uh, the, the Aryans even, the white boys, okay? Mm-hmm. Because all of them realized that they were all prisoners, <laughs> okay? And that yeah, none of their yeah. human rights were being respected. They all got together and they all demanded 
decent food, medical care, educational programs, and they all united around this, and they called us on the phone, okay? I called Ajamu and got him involved. The NAACP and other folks were also involved here. Um, and um, we, we managed to get – it was a key moment in the election cycle where um, the uh, incumbent governor um, was a lame duck, and uh, the new governor had been elected, so we were able to get meetings with the governor's staff, and we were even able to get a, a couple of civilian inspection teams to go inside two state prisons. Uh, Jammu was uh, the head of that effort was the head of two of those teams that went inside the prisons. And, pardon me, um, and um, uh, we had unprecedented access to um, staff and the other stuff, but um, a couple of things happened to that effort. Um, you know, we had some personal difficulties with um, Elaine Brown, um, you know, who decided she couldn't work yeah. with some of the people in the coalition. And more importantly, um, the NAACP um, uh, flipped on us. Uh, ben Jealous flew into town late one afternoon with no press, went straight to the governor's mansion, met with the governor, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, met with the new governor, I should say, um, and uh, flew out without a press conference, without an announcement or nothing. The next day I got a call from Edward DuBose, who was the state uh, chairman of the NAACP conference, and he said, Bruce, we're out. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and and, and like, where huh? is Ben Jealous now, folks? This is what you have well, to look for. Oh, you have to oh, understand yeah. black privilege politics. Well, yeah, I'm getting because, to that. What happens here in Georgia, yeah. your NAACP are related by blood and marriage to most of the black folks in the state legislature and to the whole class of black elected officials here. And um, uh, it turned out that um, a number of their relatives and friends got halfway house contracts. And so when the mm-hmm. um, governor announced his, criminal ju- his so-called criminal justice reform uh, package um, a couple of months later, the NAACP um, uh, and all these guys were on board, and that's where they went after they left us. But we were still in it, and our phones started ringing off the hook. Okay, we get calls from inside the prison, calls like, hey, I've been in solitary for four years. I don't know why, because they haven't told me yet why I'm here, but I'm not calling about me. I'm calling about the guy in the next cell over. They walked in and beat him down 10 days ago and uh, broke one of his legs, probably broke a rib, and he's been laying there ever since with no medical care, no this, no that. What can you do? We would get we would get calls like that on a daily, daily basis. And this is the point mm-hmm. where um, it, uh, every time you uh, pick up the phone from inside the prison, if it's a legal uh, uh, prison phone call as opposed to something from a contraband cell phone, it's going to cost you 6 to $8 to pick up the phone. Um, and if you're going to follow up on a complaint like that, that's going to be a couple of days' work on somebody's part to track down lawyers, family, and, and see what you can do. And half of us didn't have jobs. We had no organizational budget, you know, and, and we had no nonprofit allies because they're not going to take that stuff because, hell, these are prisoners, you know. Now, yes. and, and so eventually we failed those brothers. We failed them 
because we did not have the means, okay, to deal with their problems. Um, a year later, we started something called the Campaign Against Mass Incarceration, and we put uh, handfuls of our people in front of Cobb County Courthouse and Fulton County Courthouse. Fulton County's population is million, two. Cobb County's population is 700,000. Um, and we get out in front of the courthouse for um, three hours, two days a week or three days a week in the morning, and we talked to the people who were leaving the courthouse, and we presented them with a petition, uh, an opportunity to get on our mailing list, and our intention was to call community meetings in Fulton County, Gwinnett County, Cobb County, um, you know, and we got so many people who were clamoring to be part of this um, that we could not keep up with the phone calls. When you chart out organizationally, what it takes to do that, and um, you're going to make um, 40, you know, you're going to make 60 to 100 phone calls the first week, and the number of phone calls that you make is going to double uh, each week for four weeks, and then it's going to level off at about 1,200 phone calls per week. How many person hours does it take to do 1,200 phone calls a week? Okay, we didn't have the staff, we didn't have the volunteer man hours. We didn't have the people to do 1,200 phone calls a week, which is what, as a former organizer, that would take to mobilize that constituency. Once yeah. again, we failed, okay? The lesson there is that um, what you got to have, and, and, and once again, no nonprofit would take up this thing, but the nonprofits are the, and the churches are the only people with organizers on the ground with staff on the ground who can follow up on something like that if they wanted to, which they don't, which their funders don't allow them to. So what that tells us is that you cannot have a Green Party, you cannot intervene in the social movement uh, unless you have a stable source of funding, unless you have your own staff, unless you have your own offices and your own staff, and how in the heck are you ever going to get that if you don't charge dues? Also, if you charge dues, now let's go back to your example there in New England about how you have to persuade these Green Party mopes to get uh, involved in something. Well, you know what? If your organization is not based on membership dues, then how do you really define yeah. uh, a member of your organization? When some atrocity happens in your town for um, a week or a month, you're going to get 100 or 150 people at your weekly meetings. When the outrage dies down, three months later, there's only going to be 10 people at that meeting, okay? But those 10 people are going to be bound by the decisions made by the 100 when the 100 people were in the room, whether the 100 knew what they were doing, whether they were fly by night, whether they were just only fleetingly interested in this because you didn't make a way to distinguish between the people who are going to do the work and the people who are just going to show up and holler, you know, yeah. and your officers in, in many of these green parties are well-meaning people. Okay. They're not bad people. They mean yeah. the best, yeah. but, but um, they are not responsible to anybody in particular. They're just free floating do-gooders. And if you're free and, and, and there's a world of difference between being a free floating do-gooder and being a functioning member of a democratic uh, membership-based organization. Um, and, I mean, there's all the difference in the world. 
And if if your Green Party in uh, that part of New England where you're at, I'm going to presume Massachusetts was a um, you know was based on membership dues, and all of its officers were um, uh, elected by their dues-paying members, and and you had a mass base, which means well, well, not even a mass base. You had a few thousand members, a few hundred or a few thousand members. It would mean that those officers would be responsible to those members. That mm-hmm. that the party has to keep moving and producing in a way that um, people would feel it's worth their monthly dues money, because of course they ain't gonna pay dues if they don't feel like they're getting nothing for it. You know, then exactly. you wouldn't be having to go look for no Green Party. The Green Party would be looking for you. You see what I'm saying? Well, my daughter, so, my 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 political on the in the in the, I don't know what zone she operates in says that I need to to uh, buy a pair of Birkenstock and 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 crunch some granola in New England to be in the in the Green Party. But that's not the point. Your lesson is well taken, and I hope people are really listening to how you begin to move your agenda into a space and a place that is going to work for you. Um, well, there's another part to it, too, if, if, if I may um, cut in here. Now, traditionally, um, I mean, there have been people in the Green Party and other organizations who do see a piece of this and say, wow, all the faces in this room is white. Why is that? Mm-hmm. I mean, we need, we need to open up our doors to get some black faces up in here. And that's okay. That's exactly. a reasonable thing to think. And then some black folks look, look over there and say, yeah, all the faces over there are white. Y'all need to step aside and make room for some black people. You know what? Right. Both of them are wrong. Both of them are wrong. What has to happen here is um, you have to look at the um, existing black political class and the existing structure of black politics. And the existing structure of black politics is not democratic. It is hierarchical. You know, uh, mm-hmm. people get their mm-hmm. marching orders from the church and from politicians and, a, and an entrenched black business class. And those people are immovable. You're not going to organize their base out from under them. It's never going to happen for you. And you're not going to be mm-hmm. able to depend on them for anything. Um, you know, what, what has to happen um, is some black people have to step up and, organize and, and, and develop new centers of organization, new followings, new organizations and new centers of power, new centers of consciousness, and they have to step to the Green Party and, uh, in whatever state and whatever city you're in and, and, and don't ask for nobody to make no space for you. You bring your space with you. You bring your space Absolutely. with you. Absolutely. 50 Absolutely. years ago in the Black Panther Party, we didn't wait for nobody to make space for us. We made our own space. We brought our space. We had white allies all the time, but we brought our space with us. We didn't have them make space for us. We brought our space with us. And that's what um, uh, young and old people have to do. Well, well I'm going to say that's what young people have to do now in the Black Lives Matter movement and other um, um, areas is they need to step to the Green Party and bring their space with them. For those of you who are just joining us, this is Our Common Ground, and we're in conversation with Bruce Dixon. 
He is the Georgia State Chairman of the Green Party, co-founder and managing editor of the Black Agenda Report, commentator, journalist, and activist. He was a rank and file member of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in 1969 and 1970. Bruce, by the time you came in, I had left and elected to uh, work with uh, political figures. <laughs> but you have long been considered a voice of wisdom and advocacy and, in, and, and encouragement in the black left progressive left movement in this country, and we really do uh, are appreciative of your work. Uh, I mean, you've been doing this all of your adult life, and we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we want to talk to you about the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party. Where do we uh, – I, I want to ask you some questions about where you see your activism in today's political uh, advocacy and activism from from that history. I also want to talk to you about black misleadership in this country, not only in politics but in our communities. And I want to talk to you about the Black Agenda Report. Thank you all for being with us. We thank Bruce Bruce Dixon for being with us tonight. And we're going to go on this break. And when we come back, we'll cover all of those things and take your calls at 347-838-9852. That's our number, 347-838-9852. We hope you'll join us in this discussion and conversation with Bruce Dixon. I think that a lot of people are beginning to wake up, but that's only a beginning. Um, of course, the mass media, uh, the corporate media has enormous influence. And, and the black uh, political misleadership class has, still has enormous influence, and the Obama delusion is still widespread. And there's a whole class of actors in the black community who are engaged in promoting that delusion because it also promotes their careers. Obama did not come into existence by himself. He sprang from a class of, of black opportunists that um, you know, are in high places in the Democratic Party. So um, while people are waking up, um, uh, Americans used to be the immovable rock uh, that anchored the left wing of American politics. But now, with a black president in office, uh, there can be drone bombings, there can be illegal wars, uh, and black voices are scarcely heard at all against these things. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to shoot you right down. For your feet, boom, 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 boom. When you're talking to me, I like you like that. This is our common ground with Jed and Fred, speaking truth to power and ourselves. But you walk and walk and talk and talk and whisper in my ear. I love and talk. But when you talk like that. Thank you for being with us. At Our Common Ground, where comrades meet, speaking truth to power, and ourselves. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Ho, 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 ho.
Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. No matter what, know your values. No matter what, know you matter. The I Declare a Show, home of Real Raw Right Now Talk Media. I Declare a Show is where we deal with the difficult, real raw, right now. The I Declare a Show, Real Raw Right Now Talk Media, I Declare a the I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, and I declare it's real, raw, and right now, the I Declare Show with India Declare. And I want to tell you about a very exciting new media uh, talk radio. Call in with Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com and Irami Osei for Bong. It's right on Facebook every Monday and Wednesday, 9 p.m., and you have got to be with them. The most exciting talk that you will find in this era. The interlocutors have their own call-in and talk radio show. Facebook, Yvette Cornell or Irami Osei Frabang. You can find them there or on the BreakingBrown.com YouTube page. I also want to remind you that India's back, and if you're not getting your real raw and right now on Tuesday night, that's your fault. Not my fault, not India's fault, because India brings it. The fire and the passion and the distress and everything all wrapped up into one little package from 9 to 11 every Tuesday night here at Blog Talk Radio. It's the I Declare show. Also, starting next month, I am going to be adding Friday night for an edition of Our Common Ground. We don't get enough time. And I get email after email after email about talking about that. So uh, I am attempting to fix it. We are also looking for a producer for Our Common Ground. If you have the ability to pick up the phone and call people like Jeffrey St. Clair or Dr. Uh, um, Michael Eric Dyson or anybody else that I say, we need to bring on because we need to hear from them or whoever, or we need to challenge them or understand what they're saying in this era, we need to be doing that. 
So we're looking for a producer. We're looking for ways in which we're going to finance how we pay a producer. But, you know, first we have to find a producer and work that out. So we're doing a lot of things. We're hoping that Alpha will be coming back and will kick us out of his time frame. But I know that you do expect from us some um, interchange, exchange of ideas, thoughts, and um, strategies during this time. So we're going to be, come December, we're going to be adding Friday night. Uh, I'm hoping that Alpha will be able to join me frequently because I know you miss his voice. He's not 100% yet, so we're not going to tax him, but we're certainly going to be looking for him. So it's the I Declare show. It's the BreakingBrown.com, Mondays and Wednesdays, and I Declare on Tuesdays all at 9 p.m. Well, I mean, there's a big difference. So there's big differences, okay? The Republicans are the permanent party of Wall, of, uh, Wall Street, big insurance, big agriculture, and uh, big tobacco, big real estate, military contractors, privatizers, and the Democrats are the permanent party of Wall Street, military contractors, charter schools, privatizers, big ag, and, and so on and so forth. But the big difference is that, I guess, uh, the Democrats are not white supremacists. And some of them are for choice sometimes, and gay marriage sometimes. So there's really not a lot of choice there. Uh, really, um, it seems the American political system is democracy-proof and people-proof. Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Our Common Ground. And we thank you once again for being with us. If you're just coming in late and you'd like to join all of the people in our chat room, you can do so by going to blogtalkradio, one word, dot com, backslash OCG. Tonight we are just so uh, honored to have with us Bruce Dixon, who is the co-founder uh, and managing editor of the Black Agenda Report. In our first page, we were talking with him about his activities as uh, a supporter and the Georgia State Chair of the Green Party and some portions of the Green Party's uh, campaign in the 2016 presidential electoral season. Bruce, I want to I want to uh ask you. I always have a personal question because you know, I really value what you write um and you know, when I go on my learning um journey on YouTube and listen to I was listening to your presentation at the Left Forum in 2014 on this morning and um, one of the questions that I want to ask you that I always have a personal question for one of our guests, for our guests, is what your, this is something that I'm really worried about uh, in the 
Donad administration. I'm worried about uh, with Jeff Sessions and this new CIA uh, person and all, all these people that he is these neocons, racist neocons that he's bringing into play. I'm worried about Asada Shakur. Um, I'm worried about the uh, the mobilization and um, and and in, embedded positioning of the prison industrial complex. Well, I mean, um, like like Lynn Ford says, none of these guys have ever been my president, you know. And uh, we should be demanding. That was an excellent that... editorial. Oh yeah, and and, and if, of course if we should. Those be... of you who are listening who have not read it, you should go to the Black Agenda Report and read Glenn Ford's editorial. None of them have ever been my president. So you can get your head screwed on right and save us from the madness of having to convince you that things are really askew in how we view uh, our, 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 political, uh, uh, our, our political stationing. I'm sorry, Bruce. I, I just had to say that, but it, it was great. It's okay. Yeah. Well. Well. Yeah. I mean, like I said, none of them have ever been my president. We we should be demanding uh, pardons for Snowden, for Chelsea Manning, for Matulu Shakur, for Leonard Peltier, and a number of the other uh, political prisoners. But realistically, Barack Obama, um, you know, is more likely to pardon Hillary Clinton <laughs> than anybody else. <laughs> you know, yeah. just to protect her from just I don't think any of the people. I don't think any of the people that you just that you just named are even on his radar, or ever has been on his radar. The fact that oh, I guarantee I used to know Barack. Of his, the fact that he didn't do that, uh, pardon Leonard uh, Pelletier at the beginning of his second um, term. Uh, it's just disgraceful. Yeah, well, I mean, well, I guarantee you he knows who all of these people are. I mean, I used to yeah, know Barack. Yeah, he does. I worked he, with he him knows back in, back in 92. Yeah, he does. You know, and, and he knew who they were before he got to be president. So, But like I said, he's he's more likely to pardon Hillary than anybody else. And um, in the bipartisan spirit, which has characterized him so far, he might even balance that out by pardoning Trump in advance, too. You know, so so who knows how that's going to go? You know, (laughs) that would be a a kind of a fitting start there. But 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 yeah, I mean, um, there's there's a lot of um, anti-Trump hysteria out here. I mean, I I wouldn't have predicted it the way it came out. I was one of those um, like most people who were saying that wow, you know, the Republican Party is tearing itself apart, whereas the Democratic Party is at least listening to its bosses. So probably we're going to see this will be the last we see of the Republican Party. Well, that's how wrong we were, buddy. You know, we were. Yeah. We, we didn't see, uh, that I mean, was just a uh, month ago. In, yeah, yeah. But in, <laughs> in retrospect, in retrospect, you know, the signs were there. We just were not looking in the right place, you know, to see them. You know, I mean, um, um, uh, at least um, uh, Donald Trump promised those white people jobs. 
he did do that. And um, Hillary didn't even bother to do that. Okay, Obama, um, Obama, um, um, at least uh, respected respected us enough to make insincere promises about reforming labor laws, about giving us health care for everybody, and stuff like yeah. that. Hillary said, "Health care for everybody, single payer, not going to happen." Uh, TPP, yeah. Yeah. Eh, she only, you know, and and Hillary never mentioned poverty again after Bernie Sanders uh, was knocked out. You know, so yep. so Hillary ran a totally incompetent campaign. And, and like I said, uh, Donald Trump at least promised those folks jobs. And we Americans are trained and indoctrinated and inculcated to uh, respect millionaires and billionaires. It's almost uh-huh. as though uh, we were living in medieval Europe seven or 800 years ago where people were trained and inculcated and indoctrinated to respect the feudal lords that ruled above them because it was divine right, and they were just playing better people than us ordinary folks. Americans feel that way about billionaires. So if a billionaire promises you, I'm going to bring back the jobs, never mind how I'm going to do it, it's going to be great. There's, the, there's millions and millions of people who are um, totally inclined to just take his word for it, and they did. And they did. Yeah. And Hillary, um, after um, after the Sanders candidacy was knocked out, um, remember um, uh, Hillary's people. Uh, it was in the uh, released Podesta emails that that WikiLeaks re- released. Uh, they embarked on a strategy, what they called the Pied Piper strategy, and that meant that they were going to uh, accentuate the most extreme and egregious Republican candidates because they thought that this would drive um, sensible Republicans away from them and um, into the into the so-called center-right where Hillary could nab them. And so Hillary would have every, everybody from the center-right to a good deal of the right, plus she'd still have us Negroes and us brown people, Latinos, in her trunk safely. <laughs> you know, yes, so, in her trunk. Uh, that's, that's, so that's what she imagined, but uh, we know now that it didn't go that way. A lot of folks, uh, you know, uh, uh, stayed in that trunk and went to sleep and said, no, we ain't coming out, not even to vote. The heck with that. They just didn't do it. And, um, you know, like I said, Hillary, um, um, at least Obama, made insincere and hypocritical promises. Hillary didn't even do that. Yeah, she didn't, she didn't even she bother to that. lie. Yeah, she didn't bother <laughs> yeah, so. to lie. Um, right had, now, we, she was so afraid of the word lie that she didn't even do what politicians are supposed to do. Uh, well, she couldn't I do mean, it because she had told so many lies. I mean, you know, yes. she's got a long, long record. Trump, to yes. be fair, has a long, long record too, but half his record is, is as a reality TV star. And once again, of course, he's a businessman, and, and we're trained to respect the businessman no matter what. So exactly. this is what we get, you know, but, but I uh, think that people should not be overcome with grief or sorrow about this. Um, this is not a new situation. This is a new twist on a very, very old situation. It's just another yeah. day at the office, people. And, yeah. um, um, and, and for those of us who've been in the struggle a while, um, we have to realize that, that uh, when one door closes, um, another one opens up. 
and there are some openings now that um, did not exist a month ago. One of those openings is single-payer health care, okay? Mm-hmm. This is our mm-hmm. chance to reopen the you – know, since Trump is talking about dismantling Obamacare, and Obamacare was a blanket full of holes anyway, um, you know, it, instead of giving health care to uh, – it gave health insurance. And, mm-hmm. But the insurance was crappy insurance with high premiums, high co-pays, and not much coverage. Uh, the, yeah. And, and it, it's, it, it's so bad that most of the people I know who have Obamacare bronze and silver policies cannot afford to use them. Okay, the first three to $6,000 has to come out of their pocket. And if you're right. a, poor, a poor working person, you've got $3,000 in the bank. Most of us don't. Most of right. us don't. You know, so Bruce, be, there you go. Before we, before we take our calls, and I do see you 646 and 773, I do want to ask you something that's probably uh, a, a, a bit personal to share with this audience, and that is um, you spent, you were a rank and, and, and file member of the Black Panther Party, the Illinois chapter. Uh, I was uh, a member of the Boston chapter. I ran the topographical okay. center and the breakfast program in one one of the locations as a student. Oh. And one of the things that I'm always talking about is that when when we were doing that work and 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 looking back, how has your the work that you did during that time where there was so much hope but turbulence, hope but aspiration for sustainable black communities, how has that activism in your in your vision of of what you your vision of where you thought we were headed how is that translated? Well, um, the Black Panther Party was a lot of things. Uh, for those who are looking for books about the Black Panther Party, um, the book I always plug is one by Waldo T. Martin and Joshua Bloom, um, and it's called Black Against Empire. And it is hands down the most succinct and comprehensive um, account of the society that gave rise to, to the Black Panther Party and why there was a Black Panther Party and perhaps why um, there can't be again. Um, I hope um, um, at some point maybe you can reach out to uh, the authors uh, of that if they're still around and available. I certainly um, will, I mean, especially on the 50th anniversary of the founding yeah. of the party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, the name of the book again is Black Against Empire. It, it, it was a youth movement. When I joined, it was January of 69. And I was only 18 years old, and I was about the average age of people in the party uh, in Chicago. That means half the folks were older, half the folks were younger. You know, if you were if you were 23, you were an elder. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that's the way it was where I was anyway. And um, for many of us, this was our first um, foray into um, um, organizational 
uh, thing, trying to tackle this thing as an organization. And um, it, it was a formative um, experience. Um, I remember imagining that, um, you know, we would build a new society and that, um, you, know, the, you know, the horrible convulsive part of it uh, would probably be over in a very few years. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, here I am now, a senior citizen, <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, and, and looking at young folks who are still just now passing into the struggle and, and trying to find a way to um, build their lives and live their lives um, um, in the struggle. And um, what, it, what it just taught me, it taught me a lot about the prices that some of us have to pay. Um, some of us died. Some of us were maimed and 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 messed over. Some of us are still suffering um, physical and and psychological wounds. Um, some of us have been decades and decades. Some of us spent decades in jail behind it. A few are still uh, uh, behind the walls for stuff that happened then. Um, we did a lot of things right, and we made many mistakes too. Many awful mistakes. Um, many of them are predictable, you know. Um, um, sexism was real. Misogyny was real. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, it 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 was no joke. And it was and it was very real. Um, um, some of us had the wisdom and the courage to fight against it, but it was still real and it was still there. Um, uh, the misogyny literally broke up um, uh, chapters and branches. Of the Black Panther Party, if you had, that's if certainly Glenn what Ford happened in Boston. You, yeah, that's what happened uh, where where Glenn was too, uh, in New Jersey. Um, you know, and and there was just a lot we didn't know. Um, we seemed to be for what for whatever reason we were. Uh, I mean, there were some veterans of the struggle around. Um, I don't know if the name Ishmael Flory means anything to you, um, but but there were uh, in Chicago where we were some old black communists who um, yeah. had helped organize hunger strikes in Chicago on the South Side, and Ishmael Flory was one of those, and we were in touch with some of them, and we were able to listen to them sometimes, although I fear we didn't listen to them enough. Um, you know, but, but we made many, many, many mistakes. Um, uh, one, one mistake we made was, oh, oh, by the way, I taught the political education classes in Chicago on Madison street. Um, you know, because I already had a nodding acquaintance with Marxism and such, you know, but one of the mistakes we made is we, um, imagined ourselves to be what we call the Vanguard party. We imagined that if we got out there and did things nobody else dared to do that it would give other folks some nerve, uh, uh, stiffen up some other people's background, and that uh, our single spark might start a prairie fire. Well, so much for that. That's really not the way uh, revolutions happen. They happen um, along a different set of things. But we were kids. We were kids. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. What, what, what many of us were looking for, and, and um, you know, some of us dropped out, and just did other things, um, yeah. you know, and, and but, some but of, one of the things managed that it to stick did, around. It, 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 
it, one of the things in my experience is that it gave you heart, that you learned. Uh, when when I went to the party, it was like a fledgling chapter, and nobody knew what was going on. And we would we would have these meetings where I I was so young, I I had no idea what they were talking about, but it made me believe in history as an informer. It gave me heart. It it helped me to understand that risk is not a bad thing. Yeah, and and what it and what it also did what we tried to do for consciously and deliberately what we tried to do with the people that we came in contact with um in Chicago at least was to connect them with a worldwide movement, okay, that had been going on for decades and even centuries. You know, tomorrow is November 20th. You know what November 20th is, right? Yes. Um, yes. You know who Zumbi dos Palmares is, all right? Um, many, many slaves um, uh, in the Western Hemisphere escaped and um, um, in, in places where they could not be easily pursued by their masters, they formed their own communities. These were called Maroons. And um, mm-hmm. uh, there were fewer Maroon uh, communities in the United States because the backcountry was full of hostile white people. And also the backcountry in the United States had roads and railroads. You know, um, the troops that put down John Brown's rebellion were dispatched by D.C. from railroad and given their orders by telegraph. But if you were a runaway slave in Jamaica, when you got to the backcountry, there wasn't no roads and there wasn't no telegraph. Same thing in St. Kitts, in Suriname, and in Brazil. And in Brazil, there was one community of escaped slaves, a quilombo, they call these communities, called Palmares. And Palmares held out against the Dutch and Portuguese colonialist and slave masters for 100 years. The last leader of Palmares was a guy named Zumbi, Zumbigos Palmares. And um, every uh, November 20th is celebrated in Brazil and elsewhere in the yes. Western Hemisphere as Black Consciousness Day or Zumbi's Day. And yeah. um, that's, that's, uh, that's real. That's a piece of what we call the other black history. Uh, we're going to reprint yeah. that article from, I think, 2012 in Black Agenda Report probably tonight. Wow. Well, we'll look and, for that. I, the BlackGenderReport.com. I didn't mean to digress. Yeah, yeah blackagendareport.com, and I blew away your We're question. Gonna... I forgot what it was. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, let's go to our phones. 646, you're on the air. Thank you for holding, and I respect you. You're talking with Bruce Dixon. I respect you too, BJ. This is Jay. I'm going to be real hey, quick. Jay. I just, I just got a question really for Bruce. Now, you know, Bruce, I've been observing since this Neanderthal knuckle-dragger Trump won the election, that our so-called leadership is really not saying anything, nor do they have any type of plan other than to march. Now, my thing is this. We've been marching for so very long, and to be honest with you, I don't think we got anything in return. You know, nobody's talking about doing an economic boycott against this guy who it basically look will go down in history as the biggest robber baron of America with all of the side deals that he's going to do with his kids 
and um, that son son in law is that it seems like the Senate and the Congress and the media are not really going to do anything about. So basically, my question to you, Bruce, is what are we going to be able to do to kind of react this madness as far as black people are concerned? I'm going to be very frank with you. I don't care nothing about white people. I don't care what they do because they're responsible for this. But with the state of the leadership that we have with the Sharpton and the rest of these clowns only talking about marching, you know, honestly, Bruce, what the hell can we do? So your question um, is, how do we build a firewall? We got. Well, we need to build something, B. because we're about to yeah. go to hell in the hand. Back. I mean, do you really understand, let, let BJ? Bruce, I know let Bruce, Bruce respond. Is the deals that's going yeah, well, on. Well, uh, the way I would, um, um, I respect you, brother, and the way that I would um, address that situation is that I ain't against marching. You got to understand that um, it is powerful for strangers to come out of their houses and come in contact with other people who are also outraged and ready to do something, ready to try something. That, there's a power in that that cannot be denied and that we have to use, that organizers have to deploy and have to use. Um, and, and this is even more important in this age of mass media where um, we don't, where black people um, and no people really even own our own conversations. We don't even have the right to have a conversation unless somebody, uh, I mean, a mass conversation, unless somebody else can make money off of it. That's why Donald Trump took his little 10-point proposal to media takeout, you know, which is the most uh, visited uh, uh, urban website in the world, they say. You know, so, so, so I'm not against marching. I'm not against people coming out of their houses, but um, we have to have demands. We have to have demands, and we have to put together um, uh, temporary and permanent organizations. Um, now, our Democrats, all they want to do, you're, you're quite correct, in that all they want to do is holler and march and keep people uh, in touch until the next time uh, they bring you something to cheer, like this thing about Keith Ellison, uh, the congressman from the 5th District of Minnesota, being the next DNC chair. That's just another chapter in the same Obama stuff. Uh, Keith Ellison's positions, for instance, on, on Syria, on a war with Russia and a no-fly zone, indistinguishable from Hillary's, which is why he's such a great candidate for DNC chair, because he agrees with everything, um, almost everything that uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz agrees with, and, and almost everything that Hillary um, you know, agrees with. He's, he's a part of that. So I believe we need to be in the streets. We need to be um, um, in touch with each other. We need our organizations need to grow their email lists. Social media is great, but you got to really figure that social media uh, was not made to be your organizing tool. Social media was made uh, as an advertising vehicle to sell products. There's the thing called dark social media. You know what dark social media is? I'll tell you what dark social media is. Dark social media is email. Our organizations need to grow their email list. Right now, 
The email list for the Georgia Green Party is less than 5,000 people. There's 11 million people in Georgia. We intend to grow our email list to 30,000, to 30,000 this year. I mean, think about it. If there's 11 million people in Georgia, let's say half of them are kids, then um, 6 million, 6,000. If our email list was 6,000, that would mean we'd be talking to one in every 1,000 grown-ups in Georgia. Now, you're not going to build a real opposition uh, uh, party and a mass opposition party if you're only going to be talking to one in 1,000 adults. So uh, 60,000 would be one in every 100. That's kind of respectable. 100,000, you know, or, or 150,000, then you're talking to one in every 30 people. Then by that time, you're really talking. So our organizations, uh, you know, we need to take advantage of these marches and these spontaneous gatherings to grow the list of people who are in our orbits and in our conversations. And we need to take the advice of, of Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, who said that you need to look around for an organization that believes 60 or 65% of what you believe and then join that organization and unite with them in what he didn't call it this, but what I call it the spirit of party. And the spirit of party means mutual accountability, okay? We've had enough of individual activists and their individual acts, okay? We need to be, um, you know, nothing happens in this world by the grace of individuals and by the effort of individuals. We need collective action, and collective action means that we need to be mutually accountable. So we need to get out there in the streets with these other people who are out there in the streets, and we need to form some new organizations or join some old organizations, turn them over. We need to have some demands. If we were out there in the streets demanding that while he talks about this, uh, this um, dismantling Obamacare, that we get real single-payer health care for everybody, that would be significant. If we got out there in the streets and demanded that um, instead of this um, infrastructure nonsense, and I can talk at least about, you know, how, how bogus that is, um, that, that um, they build real mass transit and that it be financed not with bond issues because a bond issue is another trick that, makes, that, that borrows money from uh, billionaires and pays them back four times what you borrowed from them. Um, and Donald Trump's uh, public-private partnerships mean that you're going to take a road that costs $100 million to build, and then after you build it, you're going to sell it to a privatizer for $10 million and let them collect tolls on it for, for 40 or 50 years. I mean, we need to go out there in the street with real demands, with real demands yeah. Yeah. and threaten to disrupt stuff when we don't get more, when we don't get uh, what we need. So I'm all for marching, but it's got to go further than just not my president. Because like I said, and like Lynn Ford said, ain't none of them ever been your president. This is just another day at the office. Okay. <laughs> Same basic situation, new twist. So let's get Thanks, out there. Thanks, Jay, for your call. And uh, what, what a good question. And all of us need to be asking is where is the direction for a transformative path for our political survivorship, also for our political empowerment, and how do we dismember our what seems to be, as you pointed out earlier, uh, Bruce, 
how do we dismember our connection to the establishment that continues to promote and to support our oppression? We're going to go to our next call, 773. You're on the air. Thank you for your call. This is Alpha. Alpha, how do you think we 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 um, uh, build our firewall? Dance. Let me put it like this. Our firewall has shrunk to a level of just step over it. It's like hot coals. That's where our firewall is. And until and I, I agree I agree with everything and all of the things that Mr. Dixon has brought forth. I agree with it all, but political reality has to step in. You have to have a level of political reality that says all of the things that he has spoken about could have been more easily achieved with the acceptance of this evil that everyone calls Hillary Clinton. Now we have their country. They have their country back. And people don't seem to understand that they have their country back. A rise to bigotry, racism, misogyny, uh, Islamophobia, and the whole nine yards has taken a giant step on the Trump train. And now we are talking about the fallout. We are talking about the things that we should have done, could have done, would have done, had we all faced one thing, and that was political reality. I warned that all of this anti-Hillary, or Hillary put people in jail, her husband put people in jail, and she was put private prison. I knew all of that. But like I expressed to you all, I wasn't voting for Hillary. I was voting for the failed, faltered Affordable Care Act because before that, we had nothing. The voting rights, yeah, but civil rights. Hillary told you Department she was going to single payer. But, she, but she, she, she really said nothing about how she was going to save Medicare or Social Security well, 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 look, look, look. She said nothing about how she was going to save Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, but she did promise not to destroy it like it's about. It's about to be destroyed. And we can't seem to get our head around the fact that what we had was better than what we're about to get. You see Bruce, that. I want you to come in you on here and um, – and 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 try to carve out a, a, a new path of thinking about where There's we are. No because I think that, but Alpha, I think we're at where we were going to be even with Hillary. No, no, unless unless you can go into the church and strangle and wrangle black folks from this meme of fake Christianity. This 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 made up deal about Christianity. You don't know you're not going to be any more successful than ringing black people in from the Democratic Party. The Green Party has very fine ideas, but go oh. on, Alpha. Oh, okay. I thought y'all was cutting me <laughs> off. Again. But you said you, know, you said the Green Party has oh, I said, I, I'm ideas, sorry, I'm muted. And then you paused. I'm sorry. I, 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I muted myself because my wife walked into the room to say something to me uh, earlier, and I forgot that I had muted myself here. Um, but yeah, I agree. With, uh, I I agree. I, I have to disagree with most of what the callers said, except the last thing there um, that um, you know the black uh, misleadership class, as we have it, um, they have to be replaced, and they have to be replaced with something brand new uh, that has to be that has yet to be built in most cases. So um, it's going to be a little while. Uh, not, I hope not too much longer because I'm getting old, you know. Uh, so <laughs> I hope I hope not too much longer. But but you know the Affordable Care Act was really but but the Affordable Care Act was indefensible. Okay, the Affordable uh, uh, I, when I knew Barack Obama, he was still pretending to be or or claiming that he was an advocate of single payer. All right, and. Um, um, the Affordable Care Act was not a was not about health care. It was written by the insurance companies. It was written. I mean, if you're in Massachusetts, it was written by Governor Romney's people. And That's it, right. It um, was, his was enacted. Thank you, thank you. And and they just rebranded and, it. And um, let me yeah. let me just add because I want to be smart here. I want to I want to show people how smart I am. It was written in conjunction with the sitting governor. Of Massachusetts, of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, who was Charlie Baker, who was then the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield. There you go, there you go, and 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 uh, the folks who wrote it also uh, were uh, being subsidized by the Heritage Foundation as well. You know, um, and well, so and was Charlie what the Baker. Affordable, <laughs> there you go, and what and what the Affordable Care Act did is it cut the number of uninsured in half, but, um, um, but, but it did so unequally. Most of the uninsured that still remain uninsured uh, were black. So now the pool of uninsured people is, is poorer and blacker than it ever was before the Affordable Care Act. And many people who have Obamacare policies cannot afford to use them, okay, and um, uh, one other thing that the Affordable Care Act did is it put the uh, medical uh, health uh, needs of many of the poor people who it did not cover and claimed to cover on Medicaid when um, Obama and the Democrats full well knew that Medicaid was entirely under the control of state governments, many of whom were hostile to Obama based on their partisan differences. So they knew. They knew that um, that this Medicaid thing was something that Republicans were going to overrule them on in many, many states. They knew this full well, but they said that, well, this will be a good thing because then we can crack the whip over these Negroes' heads every two years saying, yeah, you need to come out for Democrats again to protect yourselves against um, uh, Medicaid cuts that the Republicans are going to do. So, um, uh, and, and even the public option that uh, some members of Congress claimed to be um, uh, uh, for uh, as the halfway bridge to uh, between uh, single payer and the Affordable Care Act was a joke. It was never even fully written up. Never, 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 yeah, never. Yeah. And so, Alpha, thank you for so, your call. You know, so ahead, this ahead, is our Bruce. chance. This is this is our chance to point out. Um, I mean, th- this is our chance to point out in the failures of the Obamacare, uh, of the Affordable Care Act, 
why we need real health care reform, and the only real health care reform is to take it out of the hands of the private insurers. Um, in 2009, the National Nurses Union did a study of the job creation and economic uh, aspects of single payer. They concluded that single payer would put 400,000 people in the insurance industry out of business, out of work, but it would create 2.6 million new jobs. And 2 million new jobs is uh, equal, 2 million flat new jobs is equal to the number of, of jobs lost during the recession of 2007 through 2009. And it would also inject $100 billion in wages every year into the U.S. economy and $380 billion uh, total into the U.S. economy. Um, and, and like I said, it would create 2.6 million new jobs, everything from new doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals to technicians, home care, home health care workers. And you've got to understand that right now, right now, oh, and it wouldn't cost any more than we're paying now because right now more than 31% of every health care dollar goes to an insurance company. And insurance companies okay. do not provide care. All they do is pass paper and in many cases, say no. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so we can do better. Very, and this is our chance, yeah, this is our chance to work for and agitate for better. And without the noise that Democrats are going to tell us that, oh, single, uh, single payer is dead, Obamacare is all of that, and it's the best you can get, we, uh, this gives us a chance to shut that nonsense down and, and mm-hmm. talk real talk for a change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know one one of the things too is that the, uh, as as much as we monkey cry about what has happened, so many things will fall apart, and it will give us opportunity to advocate for how they are put back together. One of those things is going to be the whole way in which we house poor people in this country. The other oh, yeah. is. Yeah, I, I just, I just think, you know, I think that this uh, Donad administration, especially in the light and this settlement, this twenty-five million dollar settlement uh, that was by a by, Democratic state attorney general in New York, a Democrat. Thank you. I guess they are thank, sincere thank when they say they want to work with this guy. But I tell you what, right. I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, the Trump administration, even though they got a Republican Congress, um, is going to disgrace itself early and often. Um, this is a guy who yeah. uh, has such thin skin that, um, you know, I mean, if, if he's upset that Mike Pence got disrespected uh, when he went to see a Broadway play the other day, what's he going to think when yeah. millions of people – uh, get in the street to put their thumbs in the air. And, yeah, at his inauguration, <laughs> there's, there's gonna be folks all around the country walking around with their th- yes. walking around with their middle fingers in the air toward, it, toward the Trump administration. Okay? I got four calls in the last three days about joining a contingent of Massachusetts citizens going to protest at the Donads inauguration. My I protest is, where I'm at. I ain't, I ain't going. I ain't going yeah, to DC. My, I protest my, my where I'm at. My response is, if I didn't go to Newark, to the twenty, uh, to the state of the black um, world, twenty-first century, 
in Newark this weekend, then I know I'm not going to the Donad inauguration. So uh, I think we have to be careful and and think about efficiency in terms of the resources that we have available to us, Bruce. And one of the so we, we have to think about to widening go. our circle. And most of the yes. people you know who haven't come out to anything yet, most of the people you know who you're going to be working with or you're going to or you want to work with in your community, they're going to be still in your hometown on January the 20th. Okay, so exactly. call them up. Call them up exactly. and have a drinking party. Call them up and 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 have breakfast once a month until yep. you figure out what yep. to do. Call them up yep. and organize something or join something. And 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 if you step to something like the Green Party, be prepared to work with people who disagree with you on some things, but who are ready to work with you in the spirit of yep. mutual accountability. So yep. that your political act is accountable to theirs, and their political act is accountable to yours. This is an organizing opportunity. But then again, every day you wake up uh, is an organizing opportunity. So I figure. Exactly. Exactly. Jay and Alpha, thank you so very much for your calls. We're going to be going out of this broadcast uh, early tonight because I want to share with you uh, some wisdom from Brother James Baldwin, uh, because we have been here before, and we are fortunate in the sense that we had people who saw. We saw. We have people who saw, people who processed and synthesized, and transposed and translated our ancestral imperatives about what those events were. So we're going to be leaving out of here about 6 of the the top of the hour. But before I do want to get to these this thing with you, Bruce, and that is um, talking about the growth of digital uh, publications like the Black Agenda Report and its future and our future in communications and the media business, I have been on the Internet for about uh, nine years now, uh, coming from terrestrial radio, uh, 33 years doing Our Common Ground, 34 years doing Our Common Ground. Don't tell nobody. Uh, <laughs> so um, this used to be You're my radio. secret. <laughs> so, talk to us a little about uh, how we as a community ensure that we have a space to discuss those issues which are intimately impacting our lives, our children, education, how we eat, what we eat, um, and the and the Black Agenda Report has been on that, on the issues, uh, in an in intricate and important analysis for us. And we need to know what your projection is, how we sustain it, how we maintain it, other than you all subscribe. I don't want to hear from anybody who has not subscribed from the 
to the Black Agenda Report, who's not subscribed to BreakingBrown.com, who's not subscribed to Our Common Ground, because we're on Facebook, Twitter, and we've got like five different Facebook pages, and and we're doing all the things that we can do to um, ensure informa- there's an information flow into the community. Bruce, talk to us about this growth. How? What do we expect? Uh, is there going to be more? Uh, the, what is the prospect of growth of the Black Agenda Report? How many subscribers do you have now? Um, I'm not going to say how many subscribers we have right now. Um, oh, okay. You know, but but we are we are sustained by um, a number of people who give us. Um, five and ten dollars a month, and twenty dollars a month, and a few people who give considerably more, and um, we have the talents of some some very professional IT people who've helped us do a few things over the year. Uh, I mean, over the years, and um, we're about to um, put our fundraising and other stuff um, on a new footing. As a matter of fact, um, a Jamu was supposed to help us with that stuff. <laughs> before we got mixed up in this running for vice president stuff. <laughs> yeah, he was supposed to be on you know. our common ground before he, got yeah, me, yeah. he was supposed to come back and talk to us about some projects and yeah. Well, I'm sure I'm sure he will. You got his number. Everybody yeah, got his number. So, you know, so so that's going to happen. And um, you know, but 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 big picture wise, we ought to look at the fact that um um capitalism and and by the way, the last thing I, I didn't say about the Black Panther Party is that the Black Panther Party um, is is where uh, we learned a lot and taught a lot about socialism. Yeah. The Black Panther yeah. Party that I was part of was was identified itself as socialist. And all of the so-called historians, the Henry Louis Gateses, the Jacoby Williamses, and and the, the Stanley, what is named, you know, that did that last uh, vanguard of the revolution thing. All of them deliberately omit that. None of them mention yeah. that. They want they want yeah. you to think that it was all about big guns and big naturals and drama and and black power, and it wasn't. You know, it was yeah. about that and socialism. Um, yeah. You know. So, but 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 back to your question here, uh, and that that has a bearing on this too, is that um, the downfall of 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 media, you know, the reason why you and I can't make a living as reporters, okay, is because of capitalism. Capitalism, um, uh, the the golden age of newspapers for for a hundred years was only possible because wealthy capitalists subsidized the news gathering uh, efforts on TV and radio um, yeah. and in the newspapers. But um, we have no right to our own conversation. Um, we, you and I learned in TV that some Italian cat named Marconi invented radio. Now, when you stop and think about it, invented radio? Radio waves yeah. are a fundamental property of the universe, like sunlight. Okay? If some mope came to you and said that they invented sunlight, you'd have to laugh. But um, this, this, this um, capitalist regime here in this country... Uh, got a handful of white boys in the room and gave out the radio licenses, gave out the TV yeah, licenses. Yeah. And, and, and so the reason, and, and, and cable networks too, all of that stuff should be owned by the people. All of that stuff should be owned by the people, yeah. but it's not. And so we yeah. are in a situation where we are having to do our media stuff around the edges. 
Um, and that is why it is so, so, so important um, for us to meet in person and for us to take advantage of every time we meet with people in person to get their contact information, get their phone numbers, get their emails right. so that we can talk to them, not through Facebook, not through Twitter, but directly. And for us to exactly. grow those lists and grow those conversations. And um, that's what Black Agenda Report is about. Yeah. Well, we want everybody to subscribe. And, Bruce, we want you to know that we run ads for Black Agenda Report on this program. <laughs> I made okay. it up. Oh, wow. <laughs> We've All been right. doing I'm it impressed. ever since your first visit to us. We do have an wow. ad for okay. the Black Agenda Report. And thank you so very much for coming and, and, and talking with us tonight. And you certainly, I didn't, I didn't see you, you at the 50th. I guess you weren't there. Well, no, I wasn't. Were you at the 50th? No, okay, no well, I wasn't um, at it the was, 50th. It was, it was uh, I was impressed. It was uh, the thing. Yeah. It was the place from, to be. From, every, from everything in the video that I saw, I was impressed as well. Thank you so very much. You're going to come back soon, and we're going to get you whenever, and Glenn. Whenever you invite me, whenever you invite okay. me, and give my love to Yvette, please. I will. I will. And thank you so very much. Bruce A. Dixon, the managing editor and co-founder of the Black Agenda Report. We are honored to have him. Folks, have and a I'm honored great to be here. Uh, gratitude day, and we'll see you next Saturday with Yvette Carnell and Irami Osei Frabong talking about their new talk and call-in show, Breaking Brown. Have a good week. A moment with our brother, James Baldwin. The inequality suffered by the American Negro population of the United States has hindered the American dream. Indeed it has. I quarrel with some other things he has to say. The other deeper element of a certain awkwardness I feel has to do with um, I gotta get off the phone it has to do with one's point of view I have to put it that way one's, uh, one's sense of one's system of reality it would seem to me the proposition before the house when I put it that way is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro all the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro is a question hideously loaded, and that one's response to that question, or one's reaction to that question, has to depend on effect, an effect on where you find yourself in the world, what your sense of reality is, what your system of reality is. That is, it depends on assumptions which we hold so deeply as to be scarcely aware of them. A white South African, or a Mississippi sharecropper, or a Mississippi sheriff, or a Frenchman driven out of Algeria, all have, at bottom, a system of reality which compels them to, for example, in the case of the French exile from Algeria, to defend French reasons for having ruled Algeria. The Mississippi or the Alabama sheriff, who really does believe when he's facing a Negro boy or girl, that this woman, this man, this child, must be insane to attack the system to which he owes his entire identity. Of course, for such a person, the proposition of which, which we're trying to discuss here tonight does not exist. And on the other hand, I have to 
speak as one of the people who have been most attacked by what we must now here call the Western or the European system of reality. What white people in the world, for the white box of white supremacy, I hate to say it here, comes from Europe. That's how it got to America. Beneath then, what everyone's reaction to this proposition is, has to be the question of whether or not civilizations can be considered as such equal, or whether one civilization has the right to overtake and subjugate and in fact to destroy another. Now what happens when that happens? Leaving aside all the physical facts which one can quote, leaving aside rape or murder, leaving aside the bloody catalog of oppression, which we are in one way too familiar with already, what this does to the subjugated, the most private, the most serious thing this does to the subjugated, is to destroy his sense of reality. It destroys, for example, his, uh, his father's authority over him. His father can no longer tell him anything because the past has disappeared. And his father has no power in the world. This means, in the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white, and since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance <laughs> along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace, and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. The disaffection, the demoralization, and the gap between one person and another, only on the basis of the color of their skins, begins there and accelerates, accelerates throughout a whole lifetime. So the present you realize you're 30 and are having a terrible time managing to trust your countrymen. By the time you are 30, you have been through a certain kind of mill. And the most serious effect of the mill you've been through is again not the catalog of disaster, the policemen, the taxi drivers, the waiters, the landlady, the landlord, the banks, the insurance companies, the millions of details, 24 hours of every day, which spell out to you that you are a worthless human being. It is not that. It is by that time you've begun to see it happening in your daughter or your son or your niece or your nephew. You are 30 by now and nothing you have done has helped you to escape the trap. But what is worse than that is that nothing you have done, and as far as you can tell, nothing you can do, will save your son or your daughter from meeting the same disaster and not impossibly coming to the same end.
Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Next week, join us with Yvette Cornell and Irami Osei from Pong to talk about their new show. Don't forget to join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.